What's up, my friends? JD here, and today I am having a conversation with Brian Bedal, founder and CEO of Kitch, which is basically Twitch for foodies. But this conversation is so much more than that. Brian is an OG in the media universe, and there are so many stories that we run through. I don't know about you, but I'm a media nerd. I love hearing about the entertainment industry and how things come to life. We talk about ESPN, Nick at Night, Quincy Jones, Will Smith, LeBron James. There is so much to get into here. And Brian says at one point he's had the luck and the good fortune of just being in the right rooms at the right times, but it's happened a heck of a lot. So something tells me this guy knows what he's doing. One of my favorite lines is turning painful moments into joyful moments and how that has guided his way in his current startup and a lot of other stuff he's done. So stay tuned for that conversation. Of course, if you enjoy what you're hearing here, if you like my stuff on social media, if you like my email, you got to smash that subscribe button. You got to show me your love by letting me know in the reviews, in the comments, smash that subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And now here is Brian Beadall. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. All right, Brian Beadall, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Good to have you. Nice to be here. So I was looking over your LinkedIn and every position I see just brings 20 more questions that I want to ask you. So we'll see how much we can cover in the next 40 minutes or so. Let's start off with a quick I'll let you do this. The quick 30-second bullet points on on who you are, what you're doing, and then we'll kind of go back and talk about how you got here. Kid from Cleveland who always loved watching TV and uh, sports and started my career as a writer in advertising. Went to Hamburger University, my proudest diploma, and then made that transition into sports and ultimately ended up back in culinary. I guess back in culinary, I started in hamburgers and I'm back in a version of hamburgers. And, full uh, circle. Full circle. I realized a few years ago that I was better at eating than sports. So figured that would be my next chapter. <laughs> well, it, it looks like it worked out for you. So just a quick bullet points on your resume. I see back in the 80s, writer, producer at MTV. Then you were a senior vice president at Time Warner. Then you were founder and CEO of what became ESPN Classic. And then now this, another name people will, will know from the last decade. And yeah, so it, I mean, it seems like you've sort of been around the media world. What sort of drove you throughout this career? Was it just finding new and interesting things? Were you constantly headhunted to the next thing? No, you know, I grew up, I guess, I don't think my dad thought of himself as an entrepreneur, but in what turned out to be an entrepreneurial family, I grew up, as I mentioned, in Cleveland. My dad had a, had a housewares business in Cleveland and always sort of ran his own shop. And as a kid, I used to go to conventions with him. And I think it was more about the entrepreneurial journey, never really articulating it, but wanting to work for myself and having ideas and living under the, the rule of ignorance is bliss and let's go try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And it's led you on a pretty, looks like adventurous career that you've had a chance to do lots of things. So back in the late 80s, early 90s, it looks like you had about three, almost four years at Time Warner. And it just says, 
Six Flags Theme Parks, Quincy Jones Entertainment, Court TV, Time Warner Interactive. So talk about that. What were you doing at, at Time Warner? So as you mentioned, I had been a, a writer and producer in on-air promotion early in my career at MTV Networks and went back to business school and came out of business school, still wanted to be in the creative side of the business and reconnected with my mentor at, at MTV, Bob Pittman, who had been the founder of MTV. And he was starting a new company, a joint venture with MCA Universal that was you know, one of the, the big studios. And uh, it's, it's part of Comcast now, but was, was a big studio at the time and invited me to join him. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, what do you want to do? And we just basically, you know, started inventing what we were going to do. You know, one of the things that you learn along the path is when you've had success, people will back you, especially in the media business for your ideas. And fortunately, I'd hooked myself to someone who had had a lot of success. And so we had a little bit of a free reign at this joint venture we had called Quantum Media to go and, and build what we wanted to build and ultimately sold that business into Time Warner and formed this group called Time Warner Enterprises. And what was inside? How did you get this remit of Six Flags, Quincy Jones? These seem sort, sort of like a collection of assets that are kind of, kind of interesting. Well, they, they were... I guess the term would be, you know, in a way, entrepreneurial. And they all had their own unique paths. Six Flags, we were... Um, actually sharing an office with a crisis PR company at the time. And uh, Six Flags had a, a roller coaster crash. And the, the head of the private equity company that owned it was in meeting with a crisis communications company about helping to manage this roller coaster crash. And we were introduced to this person. And he said, you know, I wouldn't mind getting some more creative minds on the board thinking about what to do. You know, we really need to figure out this collection of assets. And as we got inside and looked at it, we said, you know what, this thing is so undermanaged because of some of the, the challenges they had. It was at the time, and we worry about interest rates today, at the time, interest rates were 15 16%. And they had gotten stuck with bridge debt because of the challenge, because of things like roller coaster crashes. And so they had a terrible balance sheet, sheet, but a great business. We said, you know, would you sell it? And the private equity company said yes. So we put together a deal to buy it. So that was how we ended up in the Six Flags business. And we brought in Time Warner as a partner. And Corp TV, we partnered with a guy that was a guy named Steve Brill who had something called American Lawyer Media. And he had a relationship with Steve Ross, who was the head of, of Warner Communications and ultimately Time Warner, who introduced us and basically said, we said, would be into all the top-rated TV shows, seemed to be courtroom dramas, you know, LA Law at the time and so forth. We said, it would be sort of interesting with cameras in the courtroom to just capture the real thing. And, and, you know, so we, we knew dealmaker back. I mean, were you kind of a guy looking for assets to pick up and, and doing deals? You know, I would say I was an entrepreneur. I was always 
sort of, you know, my wife usually politely calls them my harebrained schemes, but was always someone who was driven by that sort of an interesting idea. I wonder how to make it happen. And so, you know, one of the benefits of ultimately being within Time Warner was we had access to talent and access to capital. So we had the ability to, you know, Quincy Jones Entertainment was just a, Quincy had a great relationship, you know, again with Steve Ross, who was the the head of Warner and wanted to do something more than just be a music producer. And so we said, you know, let's form a joint venture. You've got this great taste and talent and ability. And the first thing Quincy did was he said, there's this group that I have been listening to called DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And I feel like this kid, the Fresh Prince, has some talent. And, you know, he turned us on to the Fresh Prince. Will Smith, yeah. And we ended up taking him to NBC and produced the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So it was, you know, stuff like that that we just, one of the benefits of we were in this, this group ultimately within Time Warner, that had a broad mandate to just make stuff happen. That's, that's so cool. And I, I love these stories of things that are iconic today. And you realize that at the time, it was just a conversation between a few people of, hey, we should look at this and maybe this could work. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you create Will Smith, one of the biggest movie stars of all time. So Yeah. But, by the way, I didn't create Will Smith or Fresh Prince. I happen to be have the benefit of being in the room. But right. I think that's sort of the story of my career is I've had the luxury and the luck of being around really smart people and when it works, taking credit for it and when it doesn't have nothing to do with it. <laughs> the, 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 the hallmark of, of all great leaders. You, you, you want to be in the right rooms and you want to know when, when to take credit. I'm being half facetious, but I've, I've known some stories like that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about one of the most iconic logos here, ESPN Classic. It says, formerly Classic Sports Network. So what's the story? You spent five years with, it looks like, ESPN. Well, so no, really only spent a year with ESPN. I, I started it as Classic Sports Network, and it was really, you know, again, just an, an offshoot of when I was working at, at MTV was had gone back to business school, spent my summer working for uh, the a person who had taken over Nickelodeon. And my summer project became basically writing the business plan for what would become Nick at Night. It was at the time it had Nickelodeon shared a satellite with another cable channel because there was a shortage of satellites in the cable business at that time. We were notified one day that Nickelodeon, that the other channel was, had gotten its own satellite we needed to figure out what to do with Nick at night. And so it was really just the internal working title had very little, very low budgets to sort of bank the transponder until someone had a better idea. And so we put together a little plan to buy cheap sitcoms and to create a little environment around it. And it became Nick at night. And, you know, the genesis of it was I, you know, at the time we were, as we were trying to make it environmental, you know, said we should put, old commercials and old sporting events on Nick at Night, my boss said, the old commercials are a good idea. The old sporting events are the worst idea I ever heard. And for Nick at Night, she was absolutely right, but kept thinking, you know, there really should be a Nick at Night of sports. I grew up, as I mentioned, in Cleveland, where there were no current or future 
good feelings about sports. It was all about looking in the rearview mirrors. I used to go to the Hall of Fame in Canton, the Football Hall of Fame, and I sort of loved all of the old Jim Brown, you know, films and the NFL films library and kept thinking, you know, if you could package this all together, sort of like a Nick at night, it would hit a nerve. And, and so, you know, that was my jumping off point and classic sports really was conceived as just the, the Nick at night of sports. Wow. And then, so you founded this company and then exited to ESPN? Exited to ESPN. So I started it, ultimately convinced guy named Steve Greenberg to join me. Steve had been the deputy commissioner of baseball and the son of Hank Greenberg, the legendary Detroit Tiger baseball player. And I met Steve. I was looking for a sports rights attorney. And he quickly informed me that he was a reformed attorney, not an attorney. This was pre-internet. You couldn't really do research. I had no idea he was the deputy commissioner of baseball. And I said, oh, do you have a good attorney? So I asked him for a recommendation for someone who was a practicing attorney. I was looking to sort of figure out how to assemble these rights. And he asked me why, and I told him why. And by the end of this lunch, he was finishing my sentences and vice versa. And I went home that night and I told my wife that I thought I found my partner. And she said, I didn't know you were looking for a partner. And I said, I didn't realize how badly I needed a partner until... And so Steve and I joined together and raised a little bit of money. We got very fortunate to be introduced to Herbert Allen and Allen and Company, who very yeah. quickly backed us and gave us a little bit of money to go out and buy rights. And you know, it was basically the gang that couldn't shoot straight. The extent of cable experience was I had basically been a writer and producer at MTV, and neither of us really knew what it was like. Had someone said that, no, you can't start a cable channel, just two schmoes in a little office, we would have said, why not? Uh, Which is, you know, so anyway, so it was this, again, one of those things where we were, ignorance was bliss and we went and we started it. Yeah. And listen, that last line probably sums it up the best. Ignorance is bliss and ignorance accounts for so much of entrepreneurs that actually create something successful. Because if you went to an experienced person and said, can you do this? They would say, what are you nuts? Why would I do that? Why would I waste my time on that? But you go to the ignorant person and they say, sure, why, you know, why can't it work? Yeah, so, no, it's, 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 it's very true. So let's fast forward here. It looks like around 2010, you start as, uh, I guess, a full-time advisor, investor. And then 2020, you get into Kitsch, your, your current startup. So why did you want to do it again? And what's Kitsch all about? So why do I want to do it again is a question I keep asking. But you know, once you have that, that entrepreneur's disease, it's, it's hard <laughs> to, to get rid of it. And as I mentioned earlier, I've always loved food. I've always, over the years, have gotten to be... have invested in, in restaurants, as is usually the case most unsuccess- mostly unsuccessfully but have gotten to know chefs and was pre-COVID playing with a little side hustle that, that involved a bunch of, of chefs and had become very friendly with them and had been introduced to a, a wonderful woman named Alana Karp, who had been the co-founder of Plated, the culinary co-founder of Plated, that had had a successful exit. They were the Blue Apron competitor that had a successful exit to, to Albertsons. 
and had known for many years a guy named Doug DeLuca, who was the executive producer of The Kimmel Show. And when COVID hit, we started getting calls from our chef friends saying, can you help me figure out how to do an Instagram live stream or how to do a Zoom cooking class or pick up and delivery? And having come from the world of sports where we had sort of invented this platform, I said, you know, happy to help you, but let me, more importantly, there must be a platform out there that can help culinary creators monetize what they do and get discovered and live stream. And, you know, internally, we sort of jokingly called it the Twitch of Culinary, which is how the name Kitsch started. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavids.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. And it's evolved much since then, but it was really the discovery, you know, having that entrepreneur's disease of it doesn't exist, you got to build it, was that discovery that there was really no great platform for culinary creators. You know, here you have the category that's most the most popular vertical on Instagram, the most popular vertical on TikTok, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of culinary creators with these passionate followings, yet no way to monetize what they were doing. It makes total sense. And when you say it with that backstory, I think to myself, yeah, of course. What I mean, people want to watch others play hours and hours of video gaming live. That's what Twitch is. I mean, cooking shows, cooking, I mean, there's entire channels. You have the Food Network. You have, I remember, I mean, there's Tasty and there's Tastemade. There's, there's so much of this kind of on the periphery. But yeah, why don't you have a full time live stream for food and cooking? It makes total sense. What, yeah, what so kind of response have you gotten? The response has been great. And you know, it's, it's exciting you know, always to see the evolution of these things. We have about 700 creators on the platform now. It's, it's not user-generated platform. They're all you know, what I would describe as professional chefs of one way or you know, one sort or another, ranging from you know, very well-known chefs, including partners like Marcus Samuelson and Mark Vetri and Chris Bianco to chefs, next generation chefs you've never heard of. But the thing that we discovered along that we've discovered along the way is that there was a much bigger, besides solving a problem for the creators, that there was a much bigger consumer problem that wasn't being addressed, which was that what's for dinner decision. That even though there are thousands of food blogs and tens of thousands of recipe sites and you know video all over the place if you talk to anyone who loves to cook basically it's a very frustrating and painful process to find what's for dinner and we said we, what happens if you take that painful process and make it joyful and so that's really become the the genesis of of the mission at, at kitsch so let, let's let's dissect a little bit. What's the actual startup look like? When back in 2020, was it you tinkering on your computer? Was it a small group of people, you know, creating an MVP? How did you actually start this? So it was us. It was a small group. 
sort of tinkering and talking to chef friends. And again, there was a real need in the chef community for something like this. Fair amount of time went into talking about what exactly the platform would feel like and whether it should start out as a web only, a web and, and mobile platform or an app. And I think that that because of the comfort that people had developed with a bigger screen, watching cooking videos during COVID, we and knowing that we wanted sort of a dashboard for creators, we said, let's start as a web property, knowing that we're ultimately going to be an app-based property. But I would say the breakthrough, one of the key breakthroughs was reconnecting with a woman named Kalpana Berman, who I had met years earlier when she was at Intel Sports, who'd moved on and was running digital innovation at Nike. And turned out to be a food fanatic like the rest of us and said, you know, I love sports, but I, I love food even more. And you know, if you need anyone to, and before she could finish her sentence, I said, yes, I do join us. And so <laughs> <Need> everyone <laughs> need everyone. So, you know, we just put together a great small team and spent a lot of time sort of remotely figuring out what this thing should look and feel like. And like any startup, you get along a certain path and you need to constantly, you know, I, I think of it as, as being a little bit like whitewater rafting where you can either get freaked out by the category fives or you can get energized by them. And fortunately we've been, you know, been able to put together a team that gets energized by the changes and the evolution with an occasional you know, sort of placid pool of water that, you know, you get to rest in, but not very often. It helps that, that, that it's not your first rodeo. So you've seen it before. How have you uh, funded it? Have you raised outside capital VCs? We raised a, a little bit of outside capital. One institution that has experience in the culinary space, you know, is, is, is invested heavily in the restaurant space. And then, you know, primarily, I would say, business friends and relationships and we were fortunate to you know i've known from my sports background maverick carter who's lebron's partner for many years and and they came in uh, along with some really experienced investors in the culinary space and you know people who just sitting around a table help make us a lot smarter that's fantastic and how do you promote this thing? I'm sure, and I don't know if you figured it out or if you're in the process of figuring it out, but how does something like this grow or, or have you gotten that far yet? Yeah, so we've been live for you know almost a year now and have been monetizing for you know probably eight or nine months. And you know the first phase of what we're building has gone, I'm happy to say better than expected in terms of brand we, we've built brand partnerships with everyone from Walmart to the National Mushroom Council and probably have 25 or 30 partners that you know again this this first phase where the product is free has been built around this idea that it's a marketplace between brands and creators and consumers to help in a sense digitally sample cooking rather than do it live in, in, in a physical environment. So we've had great partnerships. You know, Travel Portland is a great example of an organization that 
looks to showcase the city of Portland and more importantly, the, the Portland you know, food scene, which is amazing, and the chefs in the Portland food scene. So Kitsch is a great environment with you know, no toxicity and no distractions. But you know, one of the lessons that we learned from you know, now this news was it wasn't about bringing people to a destination. It was really about reaching people where they consume and recognizing that Kitsch is a platform, but as a platform, it's not a platform in the old sense of the word of a website. It's a platform that's designed to create opportunity and connect with people who love to cook wherever they consume. Yeah, and we didn't we didn't mention this, but you were a co-founder of Now This, which I guess if I had to describe Now This, it was a big social media publication. It sort of lived natively in Facebook and across social, and it didn't try to bring you somewhere else. It sort of came to where you were. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, well, at the beginning, you know, and again, it's the evolution of successful businesses. At the beginning, we tried to bring them somewhere. We actually invested heavily into building an app. And we got lots of downloads and very few opens. So originally, the notion was, and it was really just as video on social media was taking hold, the idea was, let's get people to download this app and to consume, you know, sort of, if CNN, Huffington Post, and MTV got married, what would it feel like? My co-founder and sort of the, the leader of the group was a guy named Ken Lair, who had started the Huffington Post with Ariana. And, you know, Kenny had this, this vision of a video environment for younger audiences consuming the news and video. And as I say, we, we thought it was going to be an app. And one of the you know, great ideas can come from anywhere. One of the young, younger producers in the business said, I just heard that Facebook, I have a friend at Facebook, and they said they're you know, going all in on video. And we realized that as an app, we were spending a lot of money and nobody was coming and nobody was opening it. It was sort of a Hail Mary. We said, let's sort of go all in on Facebook and just try to create news, video news distributed on Facebook. And that was really the, the turning point for now this. That was a linchpin. I, I remember I was at a conference and uh, I was listening to someone from now this talk about it. And the idea that everybody was trying to build their own properties, we, we have to have our own app, our own website. And you guys pivoted because you were there as well. And you pivoted. Yeah. And this is a big lesson. It seems like it's been common throughout your career. You've, you haven't tried to resist where the wind was blowing. You said, listen, if the, if the wind's blowing that way, let's just run with the wind. Let's not try to fight it. I think you know, consumers at the end of the day are the boss. And if the boss doesn't like what you're doing, if you don't change, you get fired. If you get fired by consumers, you got a big problem. And the other lesson that from now this, it was so valuable, and I've seen this throughout my career, is that you don't need to be a VP or you don't need to have a C title to have great ideas. And you've got to listen throughout the company, probably the second most important thing, if not maybe the most important revelation that it was a turning point for now this was a young producer was trying to, to watch it on the subway on Facebook and didn't have her headphones 
and didn't want to bother people, so couldn't turn the sound up. And she came in and she said, you know, what if we put captions on the screen so you could actually read it instead of having to listen to it? And traffic exploded, usership exploded. We realized that, you know, just by putting the the words on the screen so you didn't need to listen was, a, you know, and, and that was the game changer. And it happened to come from a young producer who was on the subway who said, what if? And, yeah. you know, it's such an important part of the lesson for me. That's enormous. And I remember when that happened, when you started to scroll through the newsfeed and see the subtitled videos, and it shows you it doesn't take massive product pivots to make big changes. It could be something as simple as, hey, let's just take the words we're saying and write them on the screen and boom, that's it. Yeah. No, um, I mean, I love those stories. I mean, I, I remember hearing years ago when Mickey Drexler, who's one of the great entrepreneurs, was running J. Crew that they were getting tons of returns on their pants because people were ordering them too small. You thought, you know, you wanted to think you were a 34, but you were really a 36. And J. Crew basically said, let's actually cut 34s as 35s and 36s because people really don't think that they're as fat as they are. <laughs> and they cut down their returns by like 80% when they started shipping 34s as 35s, they'll probably hate me for saying this, but I remember hearing this story and thinking, that is entrepreneurial genius, recognizing the way consumers consume and think of themselves. And rather than trying to convince consumers to change, it's listening to the consumer. So true. I remember was I was watching or I was reading or watching something on Mickey Drexler and there was something else, you know, masterful merchandiser and in the J. Crew stores, and probably I think he also ran the Gap. So one of his techniques was he wanted people to be drawn into the store and, and color is a big way to do it. But if you have too much color, it's distracting. So he said he would take one yellow sweatshirt and sort of put it up there so people would be drawn in. But then when you walk into the store, it's, you know, it's much more neutral and, and laid back. But all these little things you start to pick up. And, and like I said, it's, it's one or two degrees. It's not 30 degrees. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's it's true. I mean, I remember I was uh, serious when I said I went to Hamburger University. I was a writer on the McDonald's account and we were required to go to Hamburger University, which was probably one of the first real corporate training programs in, in the country. And was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But one of the things that I learned about McDonald's, it was genius, was you know, back when I ate that stuff, was... Yeah, I w you would always notice when you walked by a McDonald's, you would get the smell of the burger and the fries and it would sort of attract you to it. And it turns out that was intentional, that they had little fans, exhaust fans over the doors vented to the streets that basically you know, were designed to create that sensation of smell making you hungry. So that was, you know, I remember at the time, hearing how important that was for McDonald's as a way to attract people walking by. It's all intentional. It's so subtle, yeah. but, but there's a reason for it. That's right. Yeah. Well, Brian, I loved hearing your story and uh, excited to see where Kitsch goes. It, like I said, it's, it sounds amazing. And, uh, and, and there are so many cool things you have going for you. I'm sure if we talked again in a year, there, there'd be a lot more to say. Well, I appreciate you having me on and hope to see you again. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoy episodes like this, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Real John Davids. We'll see you next time.